Hello and welcome to Changing Reels. I'm Courtney Small of Cinema Axis. And I'm Andrew Hathaway of Can't Stop the Movies. With Changing Reels, we're looking to create a new cinematic canon, one that reflects the growing diversity in our world. And we also want to share a bit of love to those underappreciated films that have impacted myself or Andrew at some point in our lives. We're going to start each episode by looking at two short films that hopefully are related to our feature-length film in some fashion. So, Andrew, what's your short film pick this week? The short film I've got selected applies more as to what will ultimately be our feature-length movie, The Caveman's Valentine. But it's Ryan Coogler's 2009 short, Locks. Ryan Coogler, of course, is the director Wonder King who bursts on the scene with Fruitvale Station and Creed. And I think it's safe to say that one of, if not both of those movies will be the subject of a future podcast. With Locks, it's a kind of a great low-key way to ease us into some of the themes that we're going to see in The Caveman's Valentine. Because Locks plays with perceptions of people, much like in the way Real Talk did Your Choice last week. But with a lot less dialogue, more how the main character sees himself, how he sees other people, and then how those other people see him, and kind of that misidentification going there, culminating in an ending that I don't think is 100% happy, which I'll explain in a moment. There's something about the lonely hopefulness in Locks that I really respond to, and you could see later on with Coogler's Fruitvale Station. It's funny, because I found the ending to be surprisingly optimistic, even though the subject matter itself does get a bit down as we approach the end. What I really loved about this particular short was how subtle everything is. There's that great moment when the main character is walking down the street and you see these two guys across the street staring at them, and they've also got dreads as well, and you're not quite sure if they're friend or foe. And the main character puts on his hoodie almost to try and look away from them, and as Kugler's camera pans around those two particular individuals, you realize that they're not looking at him as if they're enemies. They're almost looking at him pushed against the fence, almost as if they're behind bars. And you see that the police officers, one can only assume, are harassing them at that particular moment. Just because he's got dreadlocks as well, he's trying to cover it up so that he doesn't be considered a hoodlum or a thug or whatever misconceptions there might be. I, I, I really enjoyed how Kugler says so much with pretty much very little dialogue in this film. I love those points of pride based on everyone's appearance and then also how they're forced to hide that pride. The best part of that shot you're talking about with the two folks against the fence is that they seem to be leaning, they seem to be leaning into our protagonist, but as the camera gets to eye level, you just see this pained, sad look on both of their faces. It's that kind of weird emotional dichotomy that I really love about Locks because we have the confidence of being yourself, which the, the protagonist gets a moment of when he goes to the corner and he meets all of his friends with their beards and their locks and their colorful clothes and everything like that. And it's just this great tiny moment where they get to all be themselves and just relax with one another. That's a contrast to earlier where if you're relaxed and you are yourself, police may come and hold you up against a fence for no reason. And the reason that I was kind of amused by the ending instead of saying it's just 100% optimistic because obviously he makes a, a very nice choice and if I wanted to be kind of mean here I could say that maybe the symbolism of a black Jesus hoodie is a little much but to me I look at it more as like a, a, a the gift of the magi sort of thing 
I like that that the protagonist's sister, I think, wants his locks. Like, she wants hair like he has. So when he shaves it off and then he comes to her with the bag and the hair and shows her his shaved head, she has this look of, like, I'm not 100% on board with this. So it's one of those, like emotional gestures that it does work but it doesn't work entirely like we may have wanted it to like she's not beaming and i like that little bit of uncertainty there because it it lets it close on something that shows she's her own character and he's his well there's that great final shot in her room she's got that little doll head that has the braids on it and you can see i think it's her hand i can't remember if his hand is touching hers as well while she's still holding on to the braid from the doll that part of her she's still trying to hold on to as she battles whatever ailment she has i'm assuming it's cancer but it's never quite clear for the hoodie though and this could just be me talking as a black man but i love that hoodie i was thinking i gotta get one of those black jesus hoodies because i just thought it looked pretty cool and if you think about it in his own little way is doing the same self-sacrifice if you will he's giving up all that is his identity and everything that he is known for his sister you could even go and really stretch it and think of like the the clippers touching his hair is almost like him kind of being nailed to the cross but again that might be me going way too deep into this film but i thought that the hoodie was effective for the symbolism that kugler was trying to evoke i completely agree with you the only reason i brought it up is to give some perception of fair and balanced yada yada because locks predates a lot of some of our troubles here in the states at least more some of our more media troubles like with trayvon martin the hoodie has become kind of a symbol of resistance more than anything else. You can actually see this more directly with the Luke Cage trailer that just popped up for the new series on Netflix and his superhero outfit is a hoodie, basically. I love that. I love it as something so simple and while I would probably have difficulty tracing the exact lines of the hoodie and locks to the hoodie in Luke Cage or anything else, I mean, I'm 100% on board with you. I think that it's a great way, especially since it's such a light-colored hoodie like he has to find some way to blend his blackness into everything that it's a really potent symbol so yeah i completely agree with you there and i think with i can't remember when this was made i want to say early 2000s but it still definitely has like a 90s kind of feel to it even with 90s cultures like the hoodie as fashion accessory was kind of emerging at that time and i mean as you said now it's, it's taken on a whole new symbolism it's, it's just kind of interesting to see the progression of that piece of clothing which you wouldn't have given a thought about 10 years ago and now it's so significant no i agree and it's the way kugler subtly introduces those symbols that makes locks really powerful and i think it also ties into the caveman's valentine just the way that certain visual signifiers will turn people off you either with the locks themselves or with the hoodie so i want to save more of that discussion for when we actually get to the caveman's valentine and you had a delightful animated short delightful may be the wrong word to use here delightfully depressing maybe i don't know Uh, but tell us a little bit about your short see i like to consider it delightfully educational the short that i picked this week is angels and ghosts and it was directed by sarah keeney and it was narrated by samantha morton and it's about this young girl named amber and her two brothers i think was it bobby and josh or joshua and amber it's just 
kind of recounting her youth and saying about how her and the brothers used to get along and they used to play a lot and use their imaginations. And then one day they, she noticed that the eldest brother had changed and he had stopped eating and he was starting to hear voices. Later on in the film, she finds that something starts to occur to her second brother as well. So the whole film is about her trying to understand the changes that are going on within the family. And it's really a tale about mental health. And the reason why I say it's delightfully educational because it does feel, even though it's telling its own succinct story, that it could be used as an educational tool for schools, for institution, any type of institution that wants to talk about mental health and show people who are dealing with psychosis. And the link to Caveman's Valentine is that you know um, schizophrenia is a symptom of psychosis. Is that they are still people. You just have to pretty much understand and see the world as how they are seeing it. They're seeing the world slightly differently and that's not necessarily a bad thing. We just need to know how to best adapt to it. And life can still go on and people with mental health issues can still be treated like respectful human beings as they should be treated. What impressed me about Angels and Ghosts was how it told the story of a beautiful mind in a more empathetic fashion in like a tenth of the running time. Because we've been in a glut of amazing animated shorts recently, which is one of the reasons I love the fact that we're talking shorts with each episode here. Um, because with Angels and Ghosts, I was getting hints of Nina Paley and Don Hertzfeldt as well. Don Hertzfeldt from It's Such a Beautiful Day, and then Nina Paley with the risks that the director of Angels and Ghosts, Sarah Kenny, takes with the design of her characters. I felt really uncomfortable watching them in the real world at first. They look like hammers, like these long, thin bodies and then these brains that are barely contained in these huge oblong skulls. And... It just made me uncomfortable right from the get-go. But then when we start jumping into the perceptions of the two brothers, and you're correct, it was uh, Bobby and Josh, that's where the empathy piece took over because it wasn't focusing on our protagonist's perspective looking at them. It was actually her literally trying to put her face into their experience. So the protag, Amber, is really trying to empathize. She's not trying to say, this is a disease that may affect me someday and I should probably find out how to take care of them so I can take care of myself. No, she wants to see the world as they see it. And that ends up some really creepy imagery. I think my favorite was when Josh started having his schizophrenic issues and the spies chasing him because he liked playing spy games when he was little looked like tapeworms. And if there's anything symbolic of a disease or an idea that's inside you and feeding off you and festering, a tapeworm is perfect for that. I really liked how they incorporated their childlike imagination into such a serious issue. And even when she's going about doing research, it's not a simple shot of her going to the library. You see her scaling down this elaborate building and pulling out these glowing files. Every aspect of their lives, that childhood innocence still kind of is with them and that's the one thing that bonds them and it helps Amber to navigate through this thing and one of the reasons I really enjoyed this film is that it really gives an honest portrayal of what families go through with mental illness. At first she almost just wants to shake her brothers and say snap out of it what's going on here and the strain that comes with these type of issues but it takes a lot of inner strength on her part but also Josh and Bobby's part to, to work together through this you know as best they can when it's tough to speak reason to someone who is seeing aliens coming through the TV and viewing their 
their parents as aliens, but it can be done. You could at least figure out how to, to coexist harmoniously, but it takes a lot of work. And I think that's what's kind of beautiful about it, because storytelling, visual-wise, I'm obviously more biased toward than anything else, creates those immediate signifiers in our minds that either affect us or we're searching for that affect. With Angels and Ghosts, seeing the folks on the subway or the train, when Amber's looking through Bobby's mental viewpoint and what seemed to be disturbing hammer-like people in Amber's point of reference are uniform ghosts. Like, there's no hammer imagery in their heads. They're just similar and translucent and maybe a little bit different just in terms of what clothes they're wearing, but that's about it. It speaks to the power of animation because if she was unable, she in this case being the writer-director, Sarah Kenny, but if Sarah Kenny wasn't able to jump straight into visual ideas like that, then it would not have worked as well. There was going to be some kind of aesthetic distance, and this isn't uncomfortably close, but it's just comfortably close enough with Amber trying to understand what's happening that I can find, unfortunately, easy parallels with what we've been going through with my grandma, who has dementia and is slowly fading. But this shows how that fantasy, created by cinema, created by play, whatever, that fantasy can really help us cope with these diseases in a way that's healthy. You're not ignoring the problem, you're just incorporating the problem in a way that makes it easy for everyone to deal with. You know, Andrew, I think that's a fantastic point to end on. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and discuss Casey Lemon's Caveman Valentine, starring Samuel L. Jackson. Okay, now we're going to talk about The Caveman's Valentine, directed by Casey Lemons, and it's based off the screenplay by George Dawes Green. He also wrote the novel that the film's adapted from, and it was shot by Amelia Vincent. The story follows a once promising Juilliard pianist who, due to his schizophrenia, ends up living in a cave in Inwood Park, New York. Through a series of events, becomes an amateur detective. Now, Andrew, this was your pick. Could you just elaborate on why this film spoke to you so much? What was it about The Caveman Valentine that you really want to discuss on the show? The Caveman's Valentine is one of those movies that I loved the first time I watched it just because of the kind of quirk factor involved. Because you've got a main character who has harpies or uh, muses living in his head, which are beautiful black men with these huge moth wings. And he, as you said, <laughs> is trying to solve a murder mystery of a corpse that is deposited outside his cave that he lives in because he dropped out of Juilliard. Like... We talk about high concept in movies and novels and such sometimes, and I would love to be in the room when the pitch was made for this movie. Because Samuel Jackson, he hadn't exactly been as big a box office draw now that he's Nick Fury and he was able to attract attention to movies like Black Snake Moan. But for me, that big cultural renaissance for him started with The Caveman's Valentine. The reason I picked The Caveman's Valentine is that it seems to have been made in an alternate universe where America was a little less 
racist because at its core the caveman's valentine is a solid genre flick like figuring out the mystery along with romulus who samuel l jackson plays is a lot of fun the clues aren't obvious but there's a lot of stuff here and there in conversation but more importantly the caveman's valentine did almost nothing in terms of business and while casey lemons's movies haven't exactly set the box office on fire they've been weird or intriguing and i recognize that the caveman's valentine is not a perfect movie but there's so much great with it and the way that it confronts the way black Americans are used for their talents, for the way the art industry especially is kind of a shallow place where it matters more who can use who than it is you know, about making truly expressive art. In terms of the schizophrenia that's on display in The Caveman's Valentine, I just think it's beautifully presented, even if there's not a positive outcome of it. Like, there is no comfort at the end of The Caveman's Valentine. So so Caveman's Valentine, again, it had the unfortunate problem of being dropped barely nine days after 9-11. So it did no business, and my hope for an alternate universe where weird, brilliantly acted, occasionally brilliantly shot genre flicks starring strong black people exists, but it doesn't. <laughs> So so there's a lot that I love about it, even if it's ungainly, and that's why I selected it. It's an interesting film because coming off of Eve's Bayou, Casey Lemons showed a lot of promise, and you got the sense that the industry was going to get behind her. But Caveman's Valentine, I think it opened in 16 theaters at first and then expanded, I think, at its height to 59. So they didn't even give this film much of a chance when it came out and it's a film that i enjoy but watching it again you really have to suspend your belief for that last half the way how wrap up in that film are just so implausible but because everything leading up to it was enjoyable in its own unique way i'm willing to go with it i i thought ease by you would have been your pick for this particular director so i was actually intrigued when you pulled this one out What's kind of weird for me and Eve's Bayou is Eve's Bayou is a great movie. Don't get me wrong there, but it's kind of conventional. Like it's a coming of age story, admittedly from a unique viewpoint, but it's not nearly as aggressively weird as the caveman's Valentine. Uh, so it hits a lot more of the familiar beats that I saw, like in stuff like Crooklyn or um, a Bronx tale or, you know, any kind of inner city or suburby coming of age movie. So the caveman's Valentine, I, I wanted to focus on that because it's such an oddity in her career. It's one of those things that if the studios gave it a chance, it felt like it would have had the impact impact that Rian Johnson's Brick did, which again is taking a very highly stylized approach to an old genre with Brick and with The Caveman's Valentine, kind of the neo-noir detective story. But with The Caveman's Valentine, it was basically buried. And then with Brick, it's launched Rian Johnson into directing Star Wars film status. I think that's indicative of, of Hollywood in, in general. Um, I know there was, oh, I want to say it was the New York Times, uh, but I can't remember which publication, but they were talking about the baseball cap culture that is in Hollywood now, where indie directors who are predominantly white male, that the typical baseball cap, the Rain Johnson, Josh Tranks, if you will, they do one successful or moderately successful indie film, and then they get catapulted 
into either a big budget movie or a epic franchise like Star Wars or the Marvel films. Whereas female directors, especially directors of color, they don't necessarily get that same opportunity. It's almost like they have to prove themselves with several films. And if one of those films, let's say they have to prove themselves with four films and one of those films bombed, the studios use that as as an excuse to kind of railroad them off the track. I think with Casey Lemons, I think this film really did hurt her in terms of her directing opportunities and i think she does a lot in this film there's a lot of great moments she was clearly showing you that she could do a lot from a visual standpoint like there were a lot of really great images there's a few like the salazar tower that felt kind of low budget lord of the rings if you will (laughs) you know especially looking back at it now like I, i know this was done in 2001 but probably because of the budget and stuff but there's a few scenes where you think man this film it feels like it was shot in the early to mid 90s but then you've got this stuff with like the Mothman that I thought was really well done. And there's that love scene in the middle. She films it in black and white, but there's that great sensual shot of Romulus just running his braids over, I think it was Myra was her name. And it's just such a wonderful shot. Like visually, there's a lot of great moments in this film. And I agree with you that it is a unique story. And even though I had issues with the last act, I still walked away kind of wanting to see another film. I wanted to see Romulus try and solve another mystery because I think he's a very interesting detective. And that's where Sammy J's performance becomes so important here. I kind of disagree with you on the effectiveness of the tower imagery. I love how old school it is. But focusing now on Sammy J's performance, he is not exactly unhinged. A lot of his energy with Samuel Jackson performances, it seems to be directed externally. Um, You know, obviously there is the famous Pulp Fiction scene with him talking from the Bible and pointing a gun at folks. There's the Black Snake Moan moment where he's tying Christina Ricci to a radiator. And most recently there was in Chirac where he was basically an MC of Chicago, conducting Chicago as he wants. Here, a lot of that rage and energy is directed inward, which is why his humility when it came out was really affecting for me, especially with one of the upstairs neighbors where he frequents, who basically uses him as a prop to show off Romulus to his friends. He's a, a white, rich man. He sees this kooky, brilliant piano player. And that moment when Samuel Jackson goes into play is just, it's its so beautiful because he starts to play and then the muses in his head are just going crazy and the light hits in his head those muses with their muscular bodies and they're just beautiful and samuel jackson as romulus he just slowly lets his muse take over and for him his muse taking over is starting to yell at stuyvesant in his tower and scaring everyone around him it's just so refreshing to see Samuel Jackson in a role that puts him antagonistically towards a more existential threat because Stuyvesant's not a person it's just a system but we see how that system manipulates Romulus and Jackson never lets that frustration die even when he knows he is getting some charity he is completely aware that it's because of how he's looked 
down upon. And that's what makes his performance here my absolute favorite Sammy J performance because he is so locked in to Romulus and aware of his circumstances, but still mentally unable to do anything about them. Oh, yeah, I think he definitely is the glue that holds everything that's going on in this film together. And the stuff with Anthony Michael Hall, who plays the affluent man you were mentioning, it's interesting because there was a point where I was wondering why did you even need Anthony Michael Hall in the film and that him and his, and his wife? Because the film does such a great job of hitting that social commentary when it's talking about the world of art. When Leppenrobe, how arrogant he is and how self-important he is. But there's that great scene when Samuel L. Jackson goes back to Anthony Michael Hall's place and he interrupts the, uh, I think it was a dinner party that they were having. And he says that great line of, you're safe up here, nothing can touch you. It's, it's a subtle, subtle moment, but it really kind of hits home that whole cast system that's going on in New York in this film. And I thought he did a fantastic job. I almost said he, he outacted pretty much everyone in this film except for I would argue Lulu played by I think it was Anjane uh, Ellis yeah, no, I just uh, butchered uh, her name, but she was yep. in um, The Book of Negroes recently, and I think she's also on, on Quantico. I thought playing the daughter Lulu, she did a really great job. And the woman that played Sheila, um, Tamara Tooney, I found Sheila was kind of interesting because in real life, you never see her face. You only hear her making snide remarks about Romulus. But in Romulus's mind, she's still that kind of sultry woman that he remembers her being. She's there to kind of give him advice, some of it good, some of it bad, but it was kind of interesting to see how that actress got to play two different roles, essentially. And that ties really well back into your short film that you selected, Angels and Ghosts, because Romulus, the way he looks at Sheila, he has this apparition of her when she was younger and more supportive of him, and she gives him life, she gives him energy, she gives him a lot of good advice throughout the movie. And what I like about the kind of disassociation when Sheila is talking with Lulu is that we have no specific indicator that Sheila in real life is the same Sheila that is in Romulus's head. And since he has schizophrenia, whenever his Sheila, his young Sheila, comes on screen, we get this boost of optimism because she's going to have good advice, she's going to give him some energy, and she's going to lead him to a place that is away from his demons, which is why Casey Lemons' direction, it really helps put that dichotomy into direct conflict because you have Sheila who is kind of the calming presence. She's the one who is able to get Romulus to stop playing the piano or to stop ranting. And then there are Romulus's muses, which I would argue he's at more at peace with. Like the moment at the balcony when he's playing the piano, it transitions from him physically playing the piano and his muses inspiring him to his muses uses helping him play the piano in his head and Romulus going off on the rant. So Casey Lemons really hits that pressure, that artistic pressure and that societal pressure and visualizes it perfectly with those muses and then with Sheila by having a constant pressing effect 
one way or the other. Yeah, and it's a very complex story to try and pull off because when you think of those moments that you just described and then the fact that he is a detective who most of his skill comes from, I guess, intuition, but you can't even trust his intuition based on his schizophrenia. It's funny because there's that moment when he is trying to lure, I think, the bad guys back to his cave. And it was one of those really terrible plans where he was basically going to make himself the pawn, if you will. But it's like, well, if they take care of you, if they get you out of the picture, then the story pretty much ends there. Right. But you've got to remember, well, he's schizophrenic. So for Casey Lemons to convey this story where you're rooting for a guy who doesn't really know if the world he's inhabiting is even the world that actually exists while trying to show what's going on in his mind at that same time in a coherent way. It's it's a pretty tough. Like I was trying to think of watching this, which other directors would be able to handle this material and, and pull it off flawlessly. And I couldn't really think of it. You know, this is, it was a really daring film for her to make. That's one of the reasons that this kind of takes place in an alternate universe where black filmmakers in America were able to just go hog wild and make what they want. Because The Caveman's Valentine is such an aberration, just from detective movies, mental illness movies. One of the mental illness counterparts for The Caveman's Valentine is Ron Howard's A Beautiful Mind. And A Beautiful Mind pretty much makes the mental illness a positive in the long run. He becomes a well-respected professor. He's able to repress his demons. He stays married, everything like that. And The Caveman's Valentine, in contrast, shows that Romulus is always going to be dealing with this in one way or another. And I love that it respects his space and desires so much that he is free to go roam his cave. Like, at the very end, he's upset that people that are happy with his success in solving a case have decorated his cave. And he just wants to be left alone, and that's something that I really resonate with. Romulus has this genius, but it's impossible for him to integrate this genius into normal public lifestyle. Versus most American movies, where if a black man or a black woman is like the pinnacle of their field, they're only allowed to do that. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but 42, which came out a couple of years ago, really whitewashed a lot of the rough racist issues that Jackie Robinson went against. And there's no whitewashing of that here. Like, I think it's really important that when Romulus is attacked, he's attacked by people with these bright white masks. So it's literally a white devil coming after him and he's not wrong and I, I i'm completely sympathetic to that so there's i just can't believe that this is so ignored <laughs> i like that you altered our intro a bit because you had said that we need to focus on the unloved and i can't believe this is so unloved well i mean that's one of our mandates when we were discussing the show and as we were putting together a list of films we've always kind of been leaning towards the stuff that one of us or both of us have deemed unappreciated and this one it's a film that even when you're talking about Samuel L. Jackson's canon, people don't bring this up at all. And I agree with you. He gives a fantastic performance in this. You'll get people referring to the Pulp Fictions and Deep Blue Sea, what have you, even Formula 51, which is a terrible movie. But this one, I don't know if it's just 
people haven't seen it or it's not accessible enough, but it's one of those where I think he gives a really solid performance and it is one um, amongst his best in terms of the performance. The, again, the film has its flaws, but it's still far better than some of the other films of his that routinely get talked about and quoted. Well, getting back to the imagery with the white mask, though, if I remember correctly, wasn't one of the assailants under that mask a black man, though? Yeah, and that's why I really like how uh, the Caveman's Valentine treats Romulus as a disrupting presence because his blackness, he's proud of that. He's got his dreads. He's got the suit that he was able to cobble together. He's got his talent. It's all him. And then within that art world, it requires a certain amount of homogenization. They've got to become white or they've got to become something that is completely uniform. And I think it speaks a lot that the artists who eventually come against Romulus are white artists who are able to convince black artists to adopt a white role to attack another black man. Because the art world, for better or worse... Well, I'm going to go with for worse here. It thrives on homogenization to a degree because it gives them something to constantly rail against with the mainstream culture. So the mask forces them into a role where they've got to adapt this idea of whiteness versus Romulus, who is so proudly black. And again, he's just going about his business and he's being him the entire time. So the white men in masks, whether they're black, white, or whatever, under the masks, it's it still means that there's a whitewashing going on that they want to force on Romulus. Now, one thing I did notice, when Romulus tells uh, Anthony Michael Hall's character, uh, Bob, that he went to Juilliard and stuff, there's that subtle questioning of, do you know this particular artist? And it's like every person that he encounters, even those who know of his talents, all seem to still be questioned. Like, they don't take at face value that he could be who he says he is. Like, obviously, Anthony Michael Hall sees him as a homeless guy on the street. But when Romulus goes back to his old colleague to try and get in at Leperod's house, he's all talking to him. It's like, oh, are you composing a piece? Well, who are you composing it with? There's always that level of status for those guys. And it's funny because when you have a character, I think it was, was it Joey that was the, the new assistant? Yes. When you have someone like Joey who is, you know, trying to be the, the next great artist and stuff, there's still a bit of condescending attitude and tone when he's talking to Romulus, even when he's supposed to be, quote unquote, sympathetic to the cause. And obviously that gets expanded on later into the film. But I found that really interesting, even when they're at the dinner party and Leporov is do he's basically making fun of of um, Romulus and everyone there is kind of doing that fake laughter because they, no one wants to be to offend Lepin Rob. Like, it's just interesting that Romulus, even though he has talent and in some cases has already proven it, still needs to constantly jump through hoops. And I love that you now incorporated Leppenrob and, by extension, Comfiore's performance in this. Comfiore is one of my favorite character actors who just, for whatever reason, has not had the total breakout role. His innate creepiness is used to really great effect here, because one of the moments that I love is when Romulus meets up with Leppenrob in Leppenrob's party, and they're staring at the picture together, and Romulus sees exactly 
what it is, that, that the suffering is empty. And it doesn't matter what term Romulus uses to describe the emptiness, because obviously Romulus uses Stuyvesant, because that's the person who is entirely responsible for Romulus's misfortune for everything. But I love that Rob looks at him and then sees a kindred spirit that's unleashed instead of restrained, which is why Rob shows Romulus his basement and eventually ends up giving Romulus the evidence that he needs to move on. So there's a lot about this with those party scenes and everything that just shows that genre filmmaking, if we'd focus less on white folks, we could have had a weird, challenging set of movies. Because as much as I love Brick, I wish that even a tenth of the success that was on Brick was on The Caveman's Valentine. Because it's such a weird setting, the relationships hit that odd, artistic, I-hate-you-but-I-love-you connection. And then when you've got the images of the muses flying around naked and Romulus's brain, it's just beautiful. So, I love this movie, Courtney. Oh, I can definitely tell that. It's interesting because I think this film, as ambitious as it is and as daring as it is, I think it lacks that consistent cool factor that a film like Brick has. Like, I can see why Brick took off the way it did. The crowd that really embraced Brick would have a hard time sitting through Caveman Valentine. I'm talking more about, like, the younger crowd latched on to Brick, but I think there's still a lot going on in this film. Again, though, I want to talk about the ending of this film. We're not going to give away too much, although, really, this is a... We go in-depth in discussing films anyway here, but to believe that the police officers, knowing who Romulus is, would give him the autopsy report to help further his investigation was just ludicrous. I was trying my best to figure out, well, what would be the justification for it outside of we just want to get this guy off our back. But then even when you see the elaborate sting operation that he sets up with the police and Lebron, I just, I don't know, for some reason I had a hard time buying into that whole sequence on the train playing out the way that it did. Even though I love the imagery of the Mothman getting riled up and getting ready to be unleashed. I thought that part was great. It was just getting to that irked me a little. And I wish that there was a a smoother way to have reached that point. And I don't know if that's coming directly from the novel or if it was just the constraints with budget and filming time. But I I just wish that last act was ironed out a bit smoother. And here I was thinking that when you were talking about the ending, it was Romulus storming away from his cave, sad that people had visited happiness upon it. No, Um, no, I I actually enjoyed that part. Like, I like the idea of him going back to his cave until the next mysteries afoot. But it was getting to that point that's what started to bother me about this film. See, that didn't bother me so much because there's a trend throughout The Caveman's Valentine of Romulus piecing together things just from emotional standpoints. Like, we've got the Leppin' Rob with his paintings and Romulus narrowing in as to what makes those paintings resonate, or photography, or whatever. And then with the very end and Romulus and that subway train, I think what you had said there about the matter of resources and shooting, I think that we can also apply that to crime solving. Like, they've got no leads. They've got no idea. And because they've got this insane genius who is able to piece the things together, he's able to spot the aberration and what is supposed to be the perfect art culture. And that's why it works so well for me. Because until that point, Rob seems to be the bad guy. He's the one who forces folks up onto the tree so they can freeze. After that point... 
we see that Romulus, because of those connections he was able to make earlier, because of his brain typhoons, we get the information that we need for him to make those connections. We don't necessarily get the information that we need, because we need things a little more spelled out for us. But Romulus, when he goes back to his lover, Moira, one of the things that I really loved about that moment was he's not exactly slut-shaming her, because he's like, I thought that he had a tattoo. And she says, I, I mean, I, I've seen it once. Yes, I'm devoted to him, but it's not romantic. And I like that the caveman's valentine gives it that extra beat so that they can say that it's not romantic. So that Romulus, based on what we've seen earlier with his ability to connect all the random clues together it makes sense in the long run especially since he was right about the ambush that he was walking into that his daughter lulu saved him from that he would be able to organize this stuff at the end hmm. it's interesting I, I now want to go back and, and rewatch those particular moments i think that particular part and i know it might just myself speaking but i think that is what hindered this film from really connecting with people and i think also the fact that it only got released in a handful of theaters which was just a travesty yeah i'm, I'm thinking maybe it's more the release schedule than anything else because brick had a much better slow rollout and it actually had trailers and stuff at the same time you know, Caveman's Valentine was coming off of Casey Lemons's Eve's Bayou, and its budget was nearly $14 million versus Brick's 450000 So it just makes me sad that there was a moment where studios thought that there was going to be kind of this weird, visually interesting, allow our black actors and actresses the opportunity to go beyond standard roles with the cape man's valentine and then it just kind of stopped for me the cape man's valentine is one of the last movies that really grasped at that late 80s early 90s black american director standpoint and i think it's one hell of a note to end on but it really makes me sad that it does kind of end from this point on. Yeah, it'd be interesting, and I, I doubt they would do it because, I mean, everything is budget now, but it would be interesting to see if they were to bring this character back. I don't know if you know Samuel Jackson might be a little too old now to play the role, although I think he could still pull it off. But it's a very interesting character. Like, I'm surprised they didn't even attempt to make this a television show. Like, There's a one film that I, I love, and we might be able, we might talk about it in a future episode, is Zero Effect with Bill Pullman and Ben Stiller. And it's a, another quirky detective tale, but I know that film, it didn't really do that big at the box office. I think it was more of like a kind of video cult hit, but they even tried to give that a TV show. It was terrible, but they still <laughs> attempted. You know, they still attempted, whereas you think that, especially nowadays, with with the way how streaming services are and HBO and the televised storytelling has completely been redefined, it'd be interesting to do a 13-part or even eight-part series with this character and just kind of delve into it a bit further again with another case. It's a character I would love to see on screen again in some form. I completely agree. Even the sub-characters, Leppin Rob, played by Calm Fury, he's an, an amazing pressure no matter what scene he's in. And then, of course, we've got Romulus there, and if there is any TV pitch that we can make, homeless caveman with schizophrenia who can play amazing music solves crimes in his spare time when corpses get dumped on him. How is that not a great TV pitch? Right there. 
for now, I'm just happy that we got the Caveman's Valentine. I know that it didn't do much business. I know that Casey Lemons kind of went to more conventional territory after this with Talk to Me and Black Nativity, which have their pluses and minuses. But to sum it up for me, man, the Caveman's Valentine is a glimpse into a world that I wish we had. And I'm glad that we at least have this. I think that's a, a perfect point to wrap up on. Um, is there anything else that you want to say, or would you like to let people know where they can find you? Well, I'm easily found on Twitter at Can't Stop Drew, also at Can't Stop the Movies. Just pick an article, comment at your leisure, or email on the links there. So those are the ways to reach me. Courtney, how about yourself? I can be reached on Twitter at, at SmallMind, or you can find me at Cinema Axis. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to hear a particular film discussed, feel free to contact us and let us know. We've got a great list of films that we're going to be tackling, but we're always looking forward to adding more. The more, the better. We want to expand our vision as much as possible, so hop on in and contribute. For Changing Reels, I'm Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Thank you for listening. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.